Thank you for tuning in this morning to the worship broadcast of Bowglade Alliance Church. Bowglade Alliance Church is located at 425 East Canal Street North in Bowglade uh, with live worship services every Sunday at 11 a.m. For more information, visit us online at www.bowgladealliance.org. Now let's join Pastor Kevin for this morning's message. We have been entrusted with what is truly, ultimately, good news. In fact, there is no news that has ever been proclaimed in the history of the world that is better news than that which we've been entrusted with, that despite our rebellion, despite our sin, despite the fact that we have nothing of ourselves that God should desire to save us and reconcile us to ourselves, he has done it anyway. He has loved us despite our lack of love for him, He has sent his son, Jesus, to take on a horrific death. And he raised him to new life so that rebellious humanity can be forgiven, reconciled to him, and adopted as his very sons and daughters and given hope for this life and forever so that there will come a day when Jesus returns, when we are in the presence of God face to face forever with no more sin and perfect joy not because of anything we've done, but because of everything he has done to make it so. Now that's great news. Despite the fact that this is great news, it's not always received as great news. In fact, here's what Jesus says of those who go in his name to proclaim this good news. Here's what he says in Matthew 10, 22. You will be hated by everyone because of me. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. That's not the only time Jesus said something like that. Even after Jesus, his death, his resurrection, his ascension to the Father, guess what? This is what the apostles continued to preach. Here's what Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12. He says, in fact, Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That doesn't sound like good news. That's a little discouraging, to be honest with you. Why on earth is there such a negative reaction, such a negative reality to that which could not be better news of what God has done for us to reconcile us to himself? And Jesus made it clear that it's because the gospel, the good news, despite its effect, despite what wonderful news it is, is offensive. It is offensive to all. And here's just some of the ways in which we see that in the New Testament. John 14, verses 5 through 6, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, you know, having come to faith in Jesus, I'm very thankful that there is any way at all to be forgiven. That there's any way at all to be reconciled to God. That God has, because of his grace, extended to me the ability to be saved despite all the terrible things I've done in my life. That's good news. But 
when people encounter this truth of the gospel and the exclusivity of this way that God has made, it is in conflict with what they currently believe. It is in conflict with their currently held worldviews, their currently held religions, their currently held ideologies, the way in which they believe the world actually is. So you could just imagine if you put yourself in somebody else's shoes, that somebody who lives a good life, quote unquote, but does not believe that God exists. This is bad news for them. Somebody who has grown up their entire life, perhaps many, many generations, believing that, the, that Islam is true. And this stands in direct contradiction with that which they believe. And it's offensive to them. Those that spend their life committed to behaviors that they see nothing wrong with, but the Bible portrays as sin, they're in conflict with that. And so the Bible is, the gospel and the Bible are offensive to people all over the place. And Jesus was not naive to this fact. He, in fact, so he's, he knows what's good. And he knows why he went to the cross and what he hopes to do in reconciling lost humanity to himself. But he knows the way it will be received. Here's another passage that speaks to this exclusivity of the gospel. Again, there's a Jesus example. Here's an after Jesus ascends to the Father example. This is from Acts chapter 4, verses 11 through 12. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. There is only one door. There is only one path. There is only one way. And it's good news that God has provided it. But in saying, in making these claims, there will be pushback. There will be opposition. There will be even persecution as we are the proclaimers of this good news that's not always taken as good news. And we see an account of this in our passage today in the book of Acts. And so if you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to Acts chapter 19, starting in verse 23. Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 23, and it will also be up on the screen if you don't have your Bibles handy. Here's what it says. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. And I'll just go ahead and clarify that. The way is one of the earliest uh, terms used to describe the church, the Christians, this growing group of Christ followers. So about that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers in related trades and said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger. Not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. 
When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front and shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image, which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You've brought these men here, though they've neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there's anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we're in danger of being charged with rioting because of what has happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion, since there is no reason for it. After he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He traveled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people, and finally arrived in Greece, where he stayed three months. Because some Jews had plotted against him just as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back to Macedonia. He was accompanied by Sapater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derb, Timothy also, and Tychicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. These men went on ahead and waited at Troas. But we sailed from Philippi after the festival of unleavened bread, and five days later joined the others at Troas, where we stayed seven days. Whew! That could have went a lot worse. Think about that for a minute. You want to talk about an angry mob dragging two believers into the theater because it is the only place in the city big enough to house all the angry Ephesians who wanted to tear them limb from limb. And Paul, you know, Paul, hard-headed Paul, apostolic Paul, not afraid to back down, Paul was about to walk right out there and try to talk to this crowd. That might have been the end of Paul. We might not have half of our New Testament. Paul wouldn't have been alive to write the words. Could have went a lot worse. But it demonstrates a couple things. It demonstrates what Jesus said. It demonstrates what Paul has written. It demonstrates this reaction, this offense taken by the gospel when the gospel is proclaimed in a particular area. Ephesus was no different than many of the places we might think of today. You know, when you think of a major city and its various vices, when you think of Las Vegas or Los Angeles or New York City, when you think of a city like that and the, you know, the, the things you like to think of as the problem with that area, Ephesus was no different. And yet we see that God has been working. And because of that, and because of the message, and because of the repercussions of the message in this community, 
there was persecution, just as Jesus predicted. So what's going on in this passage? Why are they even angry? Why is there such an offense to the gospel? And so I've provided a, a small list of just some of the things we see in this text that would have been reasons for this Ephesian crowd to be offended by the gospel and its effect in their community. And so here's just some of the things that are issues in this passage. For starters, you know, when it hits your pocketbook, when it hits your wallet, it hurts, right? And so here in this particular town, this was the center of the world for worship of the goddess Artemis. And so because of that, people would travel from all over the Roman Empire to come to Ephesus in order to worship in this temple and be a part of the festivals that were dedicated to this particular goddess. This is a world where lots of gods and goddesses were believed in, but Artemis was the regional or local deity of that particular area. And so because of that, much of what went on in the city was to promote the worship of Artemis. And so you'd think all these craftsmen and the people selling food even and, and all these things, people who provided lodging, you know, think of Airbnb 2,000 years ago, right? All of this was to accommodate those who would travel to Ephesus to partake in the worship of this goddess Artemis. And as more and more people in the city are coming to faith in Jesus and not worshiping Artemis, all of a sudden, those people who made their living off of the wares that were related to Artemis worship were starting to lose money, and they were being directly impacted. There were certain trades that were completely in jeopardy as a result. And I would argue that because of just how big a deal it was in this community, it wasn't just about individuals who were losing money, but the whole local economy of Ephesus was likely at risk if not feeling the effects of so many coming to faith in Jesus. But aside from the money, although that's always a big motivator, right? Uh, Jesus himself entertained a rich person coming to him, and when he heard that he had to give up, sell everything he had to follow Jesus, he went away sad, right? Money is certainly an obstacle to many people coming to faith in Jesus, but it wasn't the only thing we see here in Ephesus that was an offense. Remember that the, one of the biggest offenses was against the very system of worship, the very goddess that was held in high honor in Ephesus. And so the fact that there are more and more people coming to faith in Jesus and giving up faith in Artemis means that their God is being degraded. Their God is being slighted. Their God is being blasphemed, if you will, uh, by people turning away. But one of the other things that is not necessarily explicit in our passage, but what we know from the culture of that time is this, that the world of those pagan religions is viewed very differently than the Judeo-Christian worldview. And so when a city dedicated itself to a particular god, and in this case Artemis, they believed that the proper worship of Artemis by everybody in the city is what made Artemis look on that city with favor. Artemis would protect them from their enemies. Artemis would give them success. Artemis would make sure that their, their, their crops are produced. Artemis will prosper this region so long as we're faithful to her. 
But now you see almost a, a spiritual insurrection as more and more give up the worship of Artemis and turn to this Jesus. And there was a very real fear that Artemis might turn against the city or cease to protect the city in the coming years as a result of this growing Christian threat that they perceived in their midst. And so these are just some of the ways in which the people of Ephesus would experience an offense to this gospel that's inbreaking within their community. We read in verses 23 through 28, about that time there arose a great disturbance about the way a silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers in related trades and said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray a large number of people here at Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There's danger, not only that our trade will lose its good name, but that also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And so we see these various ways in which they were offended, both in the way in which it impacted them and their community, and also their desire to defend their goddess who they committed their lives to. If you look at this passage, as you take stock of the detail that Luke included in Acts, as you look at the various people groups, if you will, or categories of people who were offended, I think we could break them down into three categories. I think that we see those who were directly offended by the gospel. We see those who were indirectly affected by the gospel. And we see those that are indifferent to the gospel. I think it's important that we draw this out for this reason. Because in our culture, in our neighborhood, in our community, in our state, in our country, in our world, the gospel is still offensive. And as we proclaim the gospel, we're going to find people in all three of these categories. There are many, many voices, loud voices in our culture. It's easy to identify them most of the time, who are directly offended by the gospel. There are many that are indirectly offended by the gospel, and there are many who are indifferent to the gospel. And it's important for us to understand this because as we proclaim the gospel, as we share our faith with our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, and these kinds of things come up, there's a way in which we ought to approach these various situations. And so I want to talk to, about that together this morning. So let's start with those that are directly offended by the gospel. Who might they be in our particular passage? Well, they're the silversmith Demetrius. All the other craftsmen that we see who he spoke to and got riled up because their income is being directly uh, assaulted by this growing Christian movement. There are those who worship this, this goddess Artemis. There's the priests of Artemis who aren't mentioned in our passage, but clearly are going to be offended by what's going on here. And all of the loyal worshipers of this goddess Artemis are directly offended by the gospel that challenges their very belief and the power, even the existence of their God. And there are those who are indirectly affected by the gospel uh, for clarification, let me read verse 32. 
The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they're there. Wow, big angry mob and most of the people in it have no idea why they're even there. Why would you get caught up in a mob? Why are you angry if you don't even know what's going on? Boy, those ancient people were pretty dumb. Yeah, we have that here too. We have that now also. Um, there are people who are indirectly offended by the gospel and all of its implications. You know, I had a, a conversation not too long ago where I told a person I was a pastor and he responded with, I hate Christians. Not really the kindest response when somebody tells you they're a pastor. Um, but isn't it funny? Because I responded to him with, okay, why do you hate Christians? He didn't even have a reason. In fact, he finally came up with, they're just so angry. And I say, yeah, you're the only one angry in this dialogue right now. Um, but it's funny how many people hate the gospel, hate Jesus, hate Christians, hate the church, and they can't even articulate to you why. Maybe they've been watching too much TV that depicts Christians in a particular way. Maybe they grew up hearing that from others. Maybe whatever it is, they got on the bandwagon and they're fierce about it, but they really have no reason to be offended because they, they don't even know why they're offended. And so we see that even here in Paul's day with this crowd, this mob, this rioting people who were angry indirectly. And then we have those that are indifferent to the gospel. We see this in various people uh, who tried to mediate the situation at the theater. We see starting in verse 35, the city clerk quieted the crowd and said, fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image, which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. And then he goes on to, to continue to calm and disperse the crowd. This city clerk was not a Christian. This city clerk, we don't have any evidence that they were, he was good friends with Paul and his companions. He probably couldn't care less about what these Christians were proclaiming. In fact, he might have been intervening because he wanted to protect his fellow Ephesians from getting in trouble with the law from rioting here in the city. But for whatever reason, he was a calm voice in the midst of this storm that came up all of a sudden. He was a rational person just trying to mediate between two sides, but he himself, we see, is largely indifferent to the gospel. And in our culture, we have those also, don't we? We encounter people as we go through our world, as we share the gospel, as we engage with others, we see people who are directly offended, indirectly offended, and many who are indifferent to the gospel. So how do we identify them when we see them? How do we figure this out? How do we know who it is we're sharing the gospel with? So let's start with who are those who are directly offended by the gospel in our context? Those who believe that truth is relative is part of it. That's a growing thing in our culture, isn't it? And we see it in various categories, which that might be true for you. That's good for you, but that's not true for me. 
You don't see the world the way I see the world. We see more and more of this in every context, in every category of thought, in every hot-button issue that's on the table is these clashing of worldviews and this, this argument that nobody has a God's-eye view of the truth. That might be true for you. Don't you impose your truth on me, because that would be oppressive. And so there's this disbelief in truth that's true for all people, for all times and in all places. And so the very idea of truth is relative for many in our culture. And so as we proclaim the gospel and say that the gospel is true for me, for you, for everybody, that all of us are sinners, all of us are are destined to be apart from God for all of eternity, but God in his grace has provided one way that's available to all of us if we place our trust in him and believe in what God did in his death and resurrection. And, there's, and they say, well, that's true for you, but not for me. And for you to say that I have to believe the way you believe, that's offensive to me. There are those that believe that there are many paths to God. Maybe there's something out there. Maybe there's a God. Maybe there's some spiritual force. But all he wants is for us to do the best we can. So it doesn't matter which way we get there, whether we go to church or spend time meditating in our living room. They all get us to God. Well, they'd be offensive with the exclusivity of the gospel. Those who believe that all religions are of equal value, that you could worship God in you know, a mosque, you could worship it in a synagogue, or you could worship God in a church, and it doesn't matter what you think about God, all religions lead to the same ultimate being. They would be offended at the exclusivity of the gospel. Those who adhere to different religious beliefs, to tell a Muslim, to tell a Hindu, to tell a Buddhist, to tell a Jewish person, that everything they've come up believing, everything their parents taught them and their grandparents taught them and their rabbis and their imams taught them, is all is wrong? And you are the one who bears truth and I'm supposed to conform to you? It's offensive. Those who don't believe that God exists, it's offensive. Those who, don't, those who subscribe to naturalism, there's nothing in the world other than molecules in motion, nothing but matter. There is no transcendent spiritual reality invading our world, no God who created everything, and you're going to tell this to me about this good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God? These are the people, some of the people, some of the many people in our culture who are directly offended by the gospel in our context. Who are those perhaps who are indirectly offended by the gospel? Those, have been, those who have been persuaded by the caricatures of Christians and Christ and believe the hype and are offended by the gospel without even having a reason answer for why. Like the gentleman I spoke to the other day. Like many others in our culture who hate Christians and couldn't even tell you why. Who are those who are indifferent in our context? We have them as well. Those are the live and let live. That's true for you, but not for me. I don't want to hear it. You go on believing the way you want to believe. Uh, despite their unbelief, they don't necessarily have any strong feelings for or against Christians. And I would argue that probably more people in our culture fall into that category. They're not the loudest voices because they're indifferent. But they're also, of some encouragement to you, they're probably the easiest to have a dialogue with. So how do we approach the matter in our context? How do we proclaim the gospel in light of these three categories of people who tend to be offended or have various levels of offense with the gospel? First of all, if you remember last week, 
we talked about the reality of, what, of the kingdom of God invading the kingdom of this world. Uh, I encourage you, if you weren't here last week, to go online and listen to the sermon from last week because it really is the paradigm through which God has given us understanding of what's going on in this entire world. That in the fall, the kingdom of, this, uh, the kingdom of God has been taken over, if you will, or the kingdom that God intended for there to be in the world was taken over by Satan. And the Bible is very clear about this. And when Jesus comes, his number one message is this, that since I came, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is in breaking. And what we see through Jesus' entire ministry is this proclamation and a demonstration of it as people are reclaimed from the kingdom of this world into the kingdom of God as demons are cast out and people are healed and the truth of the kingdom of God is put in very practical ways displayed before the world. And so because of all of this, this tension between these two kingdoms, one of the things that we fail to recognize as human beings, as Americans, whatever, is that our enemies are not flesh and blood. Our enemies are not other human beings, but the powers that keep them prisoners, the powers that keep them at bay, the powers that wield them against God, his gospel, and his church. And so we need to understand the realities that we face as we too are in the midst of this battle of two kingdoms. And so we are to see human opponents as God sees them, even those that are directly and directly are affected or indifferent. Those who would drag us into a theater to kill us, we need to remember they're not our enemies and we're called to see them as God sees them. We must love and desire them to be reconciled to God. So how do we approach perhaps those who've been directly offended by the gospel? And there are many in our culture. First, we need to take the right posture before them. As we're sharing the gospel with others, we need to have the right posture. You know, you could have the right message. You could have the right relationship with Jesus. And you could approach a non-believer in such a way that none of that matters because you harden them even more to the gospel. We have to be concerned about how we posture ourselves before others. And so that's the first thing. It's not about these things. It's not about winning the argument. It's not about proving them wrong. It's not about proving ourselves right. It's not about demonstrating our own abilities and being able to speak influentially. It is about loving others as Christ loves them, keeping the gospel central in our conversations with them, desiring other people to be reconciled to God just as we were, Maintaining humility in the midst of this conversation, consistently showing respect to those we're dialoguing with, whether or not they're showing respect to us, trusting in the power of God's spirit in the dialogue. Because I'll tell you, there is not a single one of us that is as eloquent as we need to be to just speak and people come to faith in Jesus. Even Paul was not that way. And he says it in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. It was the work of the Spirit through the ministry he had called Paul to. And the same is true for you and I. And so that, that, that gives us two good reminders. Number one, we, don't, we could take some of the pressure off as we go share the gospel because it's not our power at work. It's God's power at work. But the other side of that is, too, we don't get to take the credit. 
It's not about how great we are, and we're not trying to demonstrate that in our, in our dialogues and our debates with other people. It's about God showing up and doing a mighty thing through us. Second, we must grow in our ability to answer objections. And I know, we don't have all the answers, right? And there's things we can learn and ways we could grow in our ability to answer but I think that all of us would be afraid of approaching a particular person who was directly offended by the gospel for a particular reason. I'll paint a picture. You come across somebody who's a Muslim and you share the gospel and they give you objections about Islam being true and Christianity not being true and you have no idea how to respond. Or somebody who says science has disproven God. Don't you know there is no God in the universe? In which case, you might want to respond, but you may not know how to respond. And as we grow in these things, there's always going to be an end to what we currently know. And I'll tell you what that is, a challenge to dig in and learn more. Because God has called us to share the gospel. We must grow in our ability to answer their objections. Why? Raise your hand if you have ever said this to somebody else or somebody has said this to you? Uh, if everyone else jumped off a cliff, would you too? Raise your hand if you've ever asked that of somebody or been asked that. Yeah, I think that was my mom's favorite line. What are we asking when we ask that? We are inquiring of the person, and I think we all picture teenagers there, but, or young adults, but what are we picturing? We are inquiring of a person's critical thinking skills, are we not? We expect them to have some. Uh, if your friends are doing something stupid, I expect you to use your head to recognize that what they're doing is dumb and not to do it, but to do something different, right? Is that not what we're asking when we ask that rhetorical question? So if we expect people to think critically in terms like that, why would we not expect them to think critically when it comes to understanding and responding to the gospel? Should people just believe anything they're told? What if a Muslim or a Jehovah's Witness or uh, a Mormon or somebody else knocked on their door and said, this is true, should they just believe it? So why would it be different with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Yes, the Spirit's working, but God is the one who gave us our minds to think and there are questions, objections, that need to be resolved for people to hear and respond to the gospel. We would expect this. Further, no one encounters the gospel in a vacuum. In other words, when we, enter, when we encounter the gospel, when they encounter the gospel, they already have well-developed beliefs that have just been strengthened throughout their entire lives, and they don't just give these up in a day. It doesn't change overnight. It doesn't change easily. Naturally, they'd have questions, objections, concerns as the gospel conflicts with their current worldview. So what do we do? We're just ordinary people, you and I. What do we do? We seek to understand their objections. What is holding them back? We try to discern their worldview. What do they believe? Why do they believe it? And then we address those objections and in a manner that's meaningful, and relevant to what they just told us. And I'll, I'll tell you something, a lot of times that means work on our part. 
I don't, I, I have never heard the, the objections of atheism until I spoke to my next door neighbor. I don't know how to answer them. Are there answers? Yes, there are. I think I'm going to spend some time looking at what other Christians, Christian apologists, Christian theologians, what does my pastor suggest I read or look into to learn more about that so I can go back and dialogue with my neighbor? My, my neighbor is a Muslim. I don't even know what he believes. That's okay. You can learn that, and you can have an opportunity to dialogue with them. Guess what? Does Jesus call us to that? Yeah, that's what we see over and over again throughout the New Testament. To proclaim the gospel, to defend it. Paul, a couple weeks ago, we saw him in Athens. In the synagogues among the Jews, he reasoned from the Old Testament showing that Jesus, the Messiah, had to suffer and die and be raised again, which was outside of what their beliefs were. But that was easy for Paul. He grew up reading the scriptures. But then he went with the philosophers to the Areopagus. And they believe, they don't believe the Bible. They believe all other kinds of philosophy. And Paul quoted their own poets and remarked on their own altars of worship and used what their worldview was to demonstrate the truth of the gospel. And friends, we have to be able to proclaim the gospel and defend it relevantly to those in our midst that need to hear it and receive it. How do we approach those who've been indirectly affected by the gospel? We ask them questions. Why do you feel that way about Christianity? You know what it'll usually demonstrate? They have no idea. They either don't know why they're angry, don't know why they reject it, or they believe a misrepresentation of Christianity and of the gospel that we can clarify with the truth. They are easier than those who are directly offended. And we have them in our midst all over the place. It's the nice thing about those who are indirectly. They're usually angry with no good reason. They're in, the, they're in the theater and don't even know why they're there. And so hopefully we'll have productive dialogue. How do we approach those who are indifferent with the gospel? Let me give you some encouragement. The vast majority of people you will engage with the gospel are in this third category. They're indifferent. They don't care. They don't have a strong feeling for or against Christianity. They're the most people you're going to engage, and they're also the easiest because they're not bitter and angry. They just don't know. Maybe they don't care, but we can hopefully share the gospel in a relevant way by which the Lord does his work and they do begin to care. So what if people persist in their anger toward the gospel and those who proclaim it? How did Jesus respond when that happened to him? He didn't retaliate. He didn't hate. In fact, even for those who crucified him, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And you know what Jesus did there? As he's being crucified and he's praying for those who are crucifying him, he's following his own instruction. Because it wasn't long before that that Jesus said to his followers, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And that is what, not just what Jesus said, but that is how Jesus lived, even in his last moments before dying. I would urge you, if you face opposition, persecution, ridicule, hatred, as you share the gospel, 
pray for those who persecute you. That sounds so countercultural. That sounds like everything opposite of the way we would desire to react in those moments. But doesn't Jesus call us to more than what our natural tendencies are? Doesn't he call us to demonstrate and model his grace to others who don't deserve it in the same way he demonstrated his grace to us when we didn't deserve it? He says it in Matthew 5, 44 to 45, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your father in heaven. This is part and parcel of our adoption to son, as sons and daughters of God that we are called to live like our father would like us to live. And that means praying for and loving our enemies, knowing that it's the spiritual forces behind them that set them opposed to God and his people. And they are people who need to be rescued out of the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. Pray that what you do is right despite the temptation to do contrary in these moments when you face opposition. Jesus himself in teaching his disciples to pray the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, 13. This is part of it. It says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. How often do we pray that the Lord would keep us from temptation, that he would keep us from sin, that he would keep us from stumbling? We're quick to recognize when we failed. Hopefully we're coming to him in confession and, you know, uh, Lord, cleanse me when we fail, but how often are we preemptive in praying that the Lord keep us from temptation? And as we proclaim the gospel, I promise you, you are going to face wonderfully positive experiences and those where your natural tendencies want to come out. Pray before you go. God, lead me not into temptation. Keep me from saying, doing, or thinking something I ought not. And help me to love this person the way you've called me to love them, the way you love them. And if you hit up against a brick wall, they don't want to hear it. Just move on to others who may be ready to hear and respond to the gospel. Because Jesus is not a liar, right? And here's what he says. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And I dare say that one of the temptations that faces us in this life is this, to not take Jesus at his word, to hit one or two brick walls and assume the harvest ain't here. There are not people who want to come to faith in Jesus. There's no people that are ready. I beg to differ with you. The problem is when we keep trying to butt our heads up against the brick wall, instead of moving on to find those that the Lord is calling us to because they're ready. And if we do that, we'll see fruit. We'll see it faster than we can imagine. We'll see God work in ways Beyond what we could ask or imagine, we'll see lives transformed and God will be glorified right here in our church, right here in our community, right here in our state, if we are faithful to him in this, despite what comes.
Thank you.